0: On to a new case. A 32-year-old otherwise healthy woman presents to your ED with a 16-hour history of vague, gradual-onset, non-radiating, 5 out of 10 periumbilical abdominal pain, decreased appetite, and nausea. She denies fever, vomiting, diarrhea, chest pain, vaginal bleeding, vaginal discharge, dyspareunia, or urinary symptoms. The last menstrual period was one week ago and regular. On exam, she appears well. She has slight lower abdominal tenderness with no peritoneal signs. Her pelvic exam reveals no vaginal discharge, no adnexal tenderness or palpable mass, but she does have some cervical motion tenderness. Her rectal exam was not done. Her vital signs are normal, including a temp of 37.2. Her beta-HCG and urinalysis come back with 1 plus RBCs and 1 plus white blood cells. The serum white blood cell count is 12, with the rest of the routine blood work being normal. An ultrasound of the abdomen and pelvis is ordered to rule out appendicitis. Dr. Steinhardt, a typical case of appendicitis occurs in a teenager or young adult who presents with abdominal pain initially in the mid epigastric area, migrates down to the right lower quadrant, and progressively worsens over 12 to 24 hours. In one study, only 6% of appendicitis cases actually presented like this. So appendicitis typically presents atypically. Can you explain to our listeners, why does appendicitis so often present atypically?
1: So I think you have to look at both extremes of the spectrum. Typical cases were harking back to Sir William Osler's days, and you have to look at their studies where they skewed their population. They looked at appendicitis cases for which they were operated on because of migratory lower abdominal pain, and they never studied those that present atypically, and that's why typical cases are typical. And in the classic presentation, they skewed their population. So it's not that I think we're seeing more atypical cases, it's just they never looked for the atypical cases. And it really boils down to how long the appendix is, and there's great variability in its length and how quickly it gets inflamed and where that inflamed tip lies. There is no traditional spot. It could be retrocecal, it could be in the pelvis. This tip could be over in the left lower quadrant, as I had last month. And so the presentation and the bedside examination will not be quote unquote classic
0: those are some of the things that might alter patient presenting typically or atypically who are the patients who tend to present atypically?
1: Right. So as with every other disease state, the elderly and the very young, but this is a, we're talking about adult abdominal pain today. So the elderly have altered protoplasm, altered immune system, altered cognition, and many other changes in their pathophysiology that will will make their presentations more atypical. Likewise, immunocompromised patients, and we see more and more and more of these, including the diabetic, and uh, in North America we have to say the more obese uh, patients, with which is uh, larger prevalence in the, the younger age group where appendicitis is more. Uh, predominant. uh, All these are
0: factors that will influence the presentation. So we've established that appendicitis often presents atypically. Let's try and drill down into the specifics of the history and physical and elucidate which aspects of the history and physical make the diagnosis of appendicitis more or less likely.
1: Right. If you get a history of uh, the ride to the emergency department, uh, affecting the pain. There's some controversy here, but it, it does raise my pretest probability a little bit. You got to word it and in the right way. The patient will otherwise not volunteer this information. As with other dis- inf- acute inflammatory states, if you get a history of recurrent pain, this has in the past lessened my pretest probability, but. You know, I know the taste of humble pie all too well. And just a couple of months ago, I had a patient with recurrent, exactly like this, presenting pain four times in the last year, went away by itself, was told that it's a kidney stone without any imaging. And and so my pretest probability was way, way down. And of course, he had appendicitis. And of course, we see this now more and more frequently Recurrent appendicitis, and so I would not lessen my pretest probability for an acute process in this case, appendicitis, just because they say that they had this pain before and it and it it went away. If they get pain and then vomiting, versus the opposite, this is supportive. But you can't hang your hat on on any one. Of these factors like most things in medicine and then again you can't hang your hat on uh, a positive urinalysis as you gave an example uh, of in, in the index case this can be a red herring and uh, you can't go automatically to UTI just because you get a positive urinalysis and then you've got to drop the pants in a mail you just we keep missing torsion because we're so fixed on rule out appendicitis and in a male torsion exists Uh, it more often than not does not present with scrotal pain those of us in the audience who have a y chromosome and have the benefits of getting a quote groin injury unquote know that it's not scrotal pain that we feel. It is diffuse abdominal or lower abdominal pain. And you see these in athletes on, if you're at the stadium or, or, or on TV where when they get, quote, a groin injury, they, they come off the ice or the field clutching their abdomen, and <laughs> not their private parts. And, and so we keep missing torsion because we're not dropping the pants and examining the external genitalia in, in nails. So those are some of the things I look for.
0: So some of Dr. Steinhardt's pearls and pitfalls when it comes to assessing the patient with belly pain for the possibility of appendicitis are that if the pain increases with the bumps on the drive to the ED, that actually increases the likelihood of appendicitis. Statistically speaking, a history of recurrent pain decreases the likelihood of appendicitis, but it doesn't rule it out so you still need to have appendicitis on your radar for patients with recurrent pain. Pain before vomiting should raise your suspicion for appendicitis, whereas vomiting that started before the pain should decrease your suspicion for appendicitis. A common pitfall is assuming that the urinalysis showing white blood cells is from a UTI and missing the appendicitis that can irritate the ureter and give you a positive urinalysis. Lastly, Don't forget to examine the external genitalia in males, as torsion may present with isolated belly pain, and unfortunately, is a diagnosis that we are still occasionally missing with devastating consequences. With the physical exam, in this case, the patient actually had cervical motion tenderness. What's your take on the value of doing rectal and pelvic exams for patients who present with belly pain?
1: So I think for no other reason, because PID is in your differential of any case uh, of lower abdominal pain in a female, then it behooves you to do endocervical swabs to be sent off for GC and chlamydia. And I don't rely on the urine tests for GC and chlamydia. And so for no other reason, I think it's valid to do a pelvic exam in these individuals.
2: I think doing... the. Pelvic exam in the female patient with lower abdominal pain is part of the assessment. And it it drives me crazy when house staff say, well, I didn't do it because I'm thinking it may be appendicitis. We know that it's very difficult to differentiate uh, gynecologic pathology from uh, bowel pathology in young female patients. And I think doing the pelvic exam can, uh, in certain circumstances, increase or decrease our probability of the things that we're looking for. So I I think that the pelvic exam is really important. I think that the advent of urine uh, GC and chlamydia tests has, if anything, provided an excuse for people not to do the exams. And I think that that's a a negative thing. We're, We're doctors. We need to actually examine the patients. And a pelvic exam is really important. Rectal exams in the setting of belly pain, there, there aren't a lot of circumstances where I think it gives me a lot of useful information. One that I might add where I will do it is if I've got a male patient where I'm thinking prostatitis might be in the differential diagnosis for low belly pain, uh, I will do a rectal exam certainly in those patients.
0: Let's move on to decision rules for appendicitis. There have been a multitude of clinical decision rules developed to help us with our pretest probability and imaging decision-making for appendicitis. There's the Alvarado score, which can be remembered by the mnemonic Mantrals. There's the appendicitis inflammatory response score. These scores include things like migration of pain to the right lower quadrant, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, tenderness in the right lower quadrant, rebound pain, fever, leukocytosis with left shift, as well as elevated CRP. What is your take on these scores? Should we be using them to help us decide who needs imaging, who can be sent home and forego imaging, and who needs to get a surgery consult?
2: So given my clinical role in the emergency department doing uh, QA and and as a, a deputy director, I am, in general, in favor of things that help to standardize care and uh, using protocols to reduce variability and improve the care in our emergency departments. But the caveat for that is that there has to be good evidence to support that sort of protocolization and, and standardization of care. The idea of a clinical score that could help identify low-risk groups who could be spared any further workup is clinically really appealing when it it comes to appendicitis, I think. Alvarado has been around for a long time. This score was first arrived back in 1986, which was a long time before we were doing uh, multivariate logistic regression analysis and so forth. And I, I sort of look at Alvarado as the zombie of medical decision instruments. It should have been dead and buried a long time ago but it just seems to keep coming back again and again and again. Uh, you mentioned that it can be remembered by the mnemonic mantrals. Uh I'm not sure maybe you can remember it but I can't. It's, uh, it's a relatively complex uh, score that's got eight items uh, in it. Uh, it includes migration of pain to the right lower quadrant, anorexia, nausea and vomiting, tenderness in the right lower quadrant, rebound pain, uh, temp greater than 37.3, a leukocytosis greater than 10,000, and uh, a left shift of the white cell count with greater than 75% neutrophils. And there's a modified Alvarado score that removes the left shift component. And that gives you a score either out of nine or 10, depending what you're using. The idea is that if your score is low, one to four, that appendicitis is unlikely. If it's five or six, appendicitis is possible. And if it's greater than seven, appendicitis is probable. There have been multiple studies over the years looking at Alvarado. Interestingly, they really haven't tended to include prospective ED populations. So there really isn't a lot of evidence in the literature on the applied utility in the ED. And uh, I think that the studies that are out there have shown repeatedly that Alvarado doesn't work terribly well. It underperforms in the elderly based on a 2001 study. It doesn't work as well in women. Uh, In 2011, SickKids did a review looking at the pediatric performance of this that found that the the studies had pretty varied uh, methodologic quality, and they found low sensitivity and specificity. And in kids, certainly you can understand that because it requires them to identify nausea and anorexia and migratory pain, which is not that easy, especially for younger kids to do. Uh, ASAP mentions Alvarado in their 2010 clinical policy on appendicitis, and they do not endorse Alvarado and and note that there's uh, conflicting literature on this. And then last year, there was uh, an emergency department-based paper published looking at the use of the modified Alvarado score by Meltzer in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and they designed a fairly nice study where they took over 2,000 patients presenting to the ED with abdo pain, and then took out the subset where they thought appendicitis was in the top three things on the differential, got about 300 patients for that, and then prospectively collected the data and looked to see what happened. They ended up with 53 patients in that study who were ultimately diagnosed with appendicitis. Now there were some issues in the study design that uh, were a little bit problematic in terms of the follow-up of the patients after discharge and what the gold standard was. And almost all the patients in that study were assessed primarily by a resident, not by an attending staff. But in general, it was a pretty well done study. What they found though was that the score of less than four had a sensitivity of only 72% and missed 15 out of the 53 patients with appendicitis in that cohort. And they actually compared that to the clinician judgment, and clinician judgment outperformed the Alvarado score in that cohort. So, you know, Alvarado, I don't think, is really very compelling for us in the emergency room. The other score that you mentioned is the AIR score, the appendicitis inflammatory response score. This was developed by Anderson and Anderson back in 2008. And it's a, a European score where their goal was to try to risk stratify patients with appendicitis to reduce unnecessary imaging and try and identify a safe discharge low risk group. And maybe even identify those in whom early surgical intervention could be performed without the need for any imaging. And so they initially derived the study in a a group of about 545 patients, did a derivation and then a a validation within their uh, data collection set, and came up with a scoring system that had eight variables in it. So again, a little bit of a, a cumbersome system. And it's got pain in the right uh, inferior fossa, rebound tenderness or muscular defense, which is rated as light or moderate or strong, which is a bit of a problem with this because that's a little subjective, Uh, presence of fever, uh, a differential score for the polymorph count and the white blood cell count, and a differential score for a CRP level, giving you a score out of 12. And they went ahead and then compared the performance of their score against... Alvarado, which I think by itself is sort of instructive, because if you're better than bad, that doesn't necessarily equal good. And they did show that they had better ROC characteristics than Alvarado was, but it was still not really clear if this was actually going to be applicable. There was then a Dutch study that Uh, tried to evaluate or prospectively validate uh, the AIR score and compared it to Alvarado published in uh, 2012 by DeCastro. And they included 941 patients, including pediatric patients, with a, a fairly high prevalence of appendicitis, about 37%. And this was one of the problems. It wasn't really all that applicable to our setting. The patients were assessed not by emergency department staff, but by a senior surgical resident. And it seemed like they all got admitted to hospital and they never really even specified how they did the imaging. But the data collection revealed some interesting things. For the AIR score, about 53% of the patients were in the low score group, which would be good if it weren't for the fact that 7.2% of all the patients who ended up having appendicitis were also in the low score group. And even the patients who had advanced appendicitis defined as gangrenous plus or minus perforation, 7% of those advanced APIC patients were also in the low score group. Compared to Alvarado, Alvarado was even worse than that. So 38% of the patients were in the low score group and 10% of all the patients with appendicitis were also in that group, 7% with complicated appendicitis. So it really wasn't even clear from this study how the authors felt the score would have been used to actually change the management of the patients. So I don't think really that there's any evidence right now that these types of scoring systems are actually useful for the practicing emergency clinician. We don't really even have a, a good idea how they compare overall to clinician gestalt, although the uh, the one uh, uh, American paper by Meltzer uh, certainly suggested that clinical assessment performed better. Uh, it could be that our current practice in general actually outperforms these scores. Now, I'm willing to concede that there may be some subtlety to this and if you work in an environment where everybody who walks through the door and whispers the words abdominal pain gets some kind of imaging done, then maybe having a scoring system like this could be helpful. On the other hand, if you work at a much less test-avid environment, this could conceivably actually add to the workup uh, without any real proven patient benefit. So I think these are interesting ideas and I think we're going to continue to see research around this. But I really don't think that there's proof of efficacy uh, with respect to either the AIR score or the Alvarado score.
0: Could you be a bit more thorough, Dr. <laughs> Deschensky? So there you have it, Dr. Deschensky's incredible analysis of the two most popular appendicitis decision rules. The bottom line is that if you work in a place where everyone with a belly gets imaging then these scores might be useful in helping reducing that imaging, the length of stay of the patient, and hopefully reducing the rate of cancer, etc. If you work in a place where your docs are generally more discerning with ordering imaging for patients with belly pain, and instead opt for direct consultation with the obvious cases, and observation and reassessment, and maybe even discharge home to return for the patients who are low risk for appendicitis, then these scores probably don't help you much.
1: So I'd like to say in, in, where I practice, we have a protocol agreed upon between general surgery and the ER where when the staff clinician uh, has high probability for appendicitis in a male less than 40 years of age, then uh, no imaging is necessary and that, uh, the general surgery uh, people are to accept this patient into their service without any further imaging.
0: Yeah, just the other month I had a patient who was quite sick with appendicitis. It was a a young male patient who I called the surgeon. The surgeon has been practicing for about 35 years. And uh, just like in the old days, just took the patient straight to the OR without any imaging.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it does still happen, and I, and I do consult surgery, especially in that category of patient, the the male patient with good story, good exam. Uh, I'll ask them to come and see the patient primarily. Now, I work in a teaching center where we don't have the type of protocol that that Brian has, and so we always have residents responding initially. And I've always been a little bit surprised at the variability in the response. There's some people who just say, no, absolutely not. Get some imaging, and I'll see the patient then. But there are residents who will come down and assess the patient, and they have taken patients directly to the OR without any further imaging or or workup. So uh, I I think that this is an issue that's still relevant for us in emergency medicine, and we shouldn't necessarily feel that everybody has to get imaged.
0: We've all heard that a white blood cell count is next to useless when it comes to ruling in or out appendicitis. That's something that we hear said in the halls all the time. And we've all seen patients with roaring appendicitis with a normal white count, as well as no appendicitis with an elevated white count. What does the literature actually say about the likelihood ratio of appendicitis with an elevated white blood cell count? And is it true that a white blood cell count is next to useless?
2: We've all spent years, I think, deriding surgeons when they ask us about what the white blood cell count is for the patient, we're referring to them with uh, possible appendicitis. And I think if you look at the literature, it does support the idea that a white blood cell count greater than 10 by itself doesn't really have uh, tremendous power in ruling in or ruling out the diagnosis. But I think there are some things that are important to understand about the literature that uh, give a little bit more subtlety to that. Uh, Anderson, uh, in uh, British Journal of Surgery back in 2004, did a review of the diagnostic utility of different tests in the setting of appendicitis. And they found that a, a white count greater than 10 Uh, in these circumstances had a a positive likelihood ratio of about 2.47 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.25. The sensitivities and the specificities were not that good really in the 70s and in the 50s uh, respectively so as a diagnostic test it really wasn't proven to be all that useful. What I think is important to understand, though, is that those likelihood ratios are actually as good or maybe even a little bit better than a lot of the other clinical variables that we use in trying to assess the patient in terms of location of pain and migration and presence of vomiting and and so forth. So, you know, uh, it's true that you're never going to make a diagnosis just based on this, but there is some utility associated with a white blood cell count, at least looked at on a population basis, if not for the individual that you have in front of you. As well, one thing that I think the literature doesn't reflect is that sometimes it's, it's a spectrum as well. So if I have a patient with belly pain in front of me and I've got a white count of 14,000, that doesn't often really help me much one direction or the other. On the other hand, if they've got a white blood cell count of 22,000 with the left shift, you've got my attention now. There's almost certainly something that's pathologic that's, that's causing that, and I'm likely to go forward with that. So... Yeah, It's not really all that terribly black and white, and there are a little bit more in the way of subtleties in the way you apply this in the real world. We use gestalt impressions, and each piece of information contributes to our overall impression of the patient. So while when you break it down statistically and you look at these individual elements, they may not be all that good, the way we put it together as clinicians is important, and it can inform our decision-making further down the road for these patients.
0: Okay, and how about if you combine a white blood cell count with the CRP? I mean, I can't, le- I can't remember the last time I ordered a CRP for query appendicitis. I was actually surprised to see in the literature the really good positive likelihood ratios for a combination of elevated white blood cells and CRP. What's your take on ordering CRPs for patients with query appendicitis?
2: So I was actually surprised by this as well, and you're right. There is evidence in the literature that shows the combination of both being elevated over a certain cutoff point can give you positive likelihood ratios of over 10 And in fact, if they're both negative or both below the threshold that's been picked, the negative likelihood ratios are actually fairly low, sometimes less than 0.1, although the confidence intervals overlap that. So I have to admit, I don't think I've ever ordered a CRP in the assessment of somebody that I was thinking about appendicitis for. So I can't really comment on how I would use it in clinical practice because I haven't been. But uh, the evidence in the literature is uh, sort of interesting, actually, and I I think that's something that uh, we'll probably be following as as it develops.
1: So the way I look at this is uh, with other markers of inflammation, which white cell count and CRP both are, that when they're elevated, uh, there may be some acute inflammatory process going on, it does not mean that it's appendicitis in right lower quadrant pain. It could be PID. It could be Crohn's. It could be CA. Uh, I wouldn't hang my hat on the diagnosis of appendicitis. I'd also scrutinize the literature as to spectrum bias. Were they only looking at appendicitis as an outcome? Was that their uh, filter? for including patients into this. And and therefore you don't see the other etiologies that that we've brought up. So fascinating information to be considered. I wouldn't call it a game changer at this point.
0: Okay. The other interesting thing to think about is that uh, the white blood cell count will increase its sensitivity with the duration of illness, which makes sense. You know, if someone presents two hours after they started their belly pain, Uh, early in their illness, then it's unlikely that they're going to have an elevated white count from their appendicitis. But if they present 36 hours later with a high fever and they're really sick and a lot of tenderness, you'd expect to see a high white blood cell count. And so that might change your interpretation of the test.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All all tests have to be interpreted in context. And I think that's really important. And that's something that's sometimes lost, I think, in the literature because it's very difficult to collect in any sort of meaningful, uh, objective way those kind of subtleties when you're doing a study.
1: Especially when the vast majority of these studies are retrospective and and have all the caveats of what a retrospective study entails.
2: Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of this data does come from surgical literature where these are patients not undifferentiated ED patients, but patients who have been admitted to a surgical service for observation for abdominal pain. So uh, the the applicability is uh, in some question, certainly.
0: Before we leave lab tests, Dr. Steinhardt, how should we be interpreting the urinalysis in the context of a patient who presents with right lower quadrant pain?
1: It is an issue sometimes in ruling in or out appendicitis versus UTI. We should be aware that elderly people often have asymptomatic bacteriuria, regardless of what other pathology might be going on. And so whether they have a heart attack or not, they they may have a positive urinalysis, but more significant with right lower quadrant. If you're suspicious of a pylo more than appendicitis, and it's a very strongly positive urinalysis with a lot of white cells, a lot of bacteriuria, some red cells, then, yeah, go ahead and, and treat for a pylo. The, the flip side of this, if you're strongly suspicious for appendicitis and less so for a pylo, and they have marginal white cells and red cells in their urinalysis, I would ignore the urinalysis. This is often reflexive of an irritable ureter with certain lies of the of the inflamed appendix across the ureter you can get this sympathetic exudate shall we say of and mildly positive white cells and or red cells in the urine and this this in no way shape or form should dissuade you from pursuing the diagnosis of appendicitis
0: We all want to avoid a patient's appendicitis perforating because it means one or two weeks in the hospital versus one or two days. It means prolonged antibiotics, a small but significant mortality rate, etc. Is it safe to delay imaging for appendicitis until the morning? In other words, is there a significant risk of perforation if you don't get imaging on a timely basis and get the patient operated on in a timely manner?
1: In my earlier days, we would uh, make a clinical diagnosis of appendicitis in the middle of the night and the staff surgeon would come in and operate, period. Now we've gone to the other extreme where we are delaying these patients to get their appropriate uh, surgical intervention. There are studies that support this and there are studies that do not support this, but the, the surgical... Community, I think, uh, by and large, tends to adhere to delayed appendectomy, given the time of night, given uh, the feasibility of getting to the operating room. We now know how tight in constraints uh, OR time is. The studies are retrospective, and as I alluded to previously, these are fraught with uh, biases. You can imagine. First of all, they look at ICD scores for appendectomy, and so you're only looking at patients who had gone to appendectomy, typically. Um, They are looking at ER charts written by uh, clinicians who, one, don't know how to write, two, are rushed for time and put down marginal information at best, and we've not considered the inter-observer variability per patient. So you and I we all know we 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 have house staff or we take on cases from other staff members where they say there's there's guarding in the right lower quadrant with this patient and and you go to assess the patient and there's no guarding in the right lower quadrant not not in your estimation but in your, your colleague's estimation it is. So guarding and rebound is highly subjective with or without documentation of this so these studies have their methodological problems and i think that the dogma in clinical epidemiology is you don't change your practice from a retrospective study the level of evidence even when there is structured methods uh, to abstract this information and the best statistical analysis is that it, It's interesting. It may show trends. It, if if necessary, it will entice a prospective study. Uh, but in of itself, should not change your practice. I think everybody agrees with that. Not always adhere to, mind you. So, as with these studies, uh, they're interesting. Uh, again, for and against. They say that. The, the, the ones for it say that it's the time to presentation in the ER that determines whether they're, they're going to have a perforation and not the delay to subsequently to the definitive operation. I have to scratch my head a little bit about that. Uh, what is so magical about being in hospital versus being at home and delaying 10 hours? Well, it's intravenous antibiotics, uh, number one. And number two, if they're sick when they present, you're more likely to push for an urgent appendectomy versus the mild right lower quadrant pain in someone who is hungry and wants to eat and doesn't have a white count elevation. <laughs> and and then thirdly, I think these studies miss those cases that do perf uh, in hospital while they're waiting for their appendectomy and never get there index visit appendectomy they get bed rest intravenous antibiotics and percutaneous drainage and you and 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 they're not counted in the study because they never had their index appendectomy which is what what drives the study and what what is the inclusion criteria so lots of problems with this i think if i have my attendix appendix in the middle of the night i'd like expectant urgent appendectomy period
2: so I, I think the one thing that I, I'd comment on on this is uh, just the fact that I think uh, we're getting less and less tolerant to the idea that uh, imaging shouldn't happen in the middle of the night or that just because it's off hours, you can't get a CT or you can't get an ultrasound. I think, especially those of us who, who work in bigger centers... Uh, there's been a push to make our diagnostic imaging colleagues realize that if there's an indication to do the study, the study should get done when it's determined that the patient should have it. And uh, I think that this has been a positive direction in emergency medicine. So while I I agree with Brian that the literature around what the delays mean and and so forth in in the context of the patient is difficult to interpret, uh, I think if As a clinician, you've decided that this is something that you have to investigate to rule it in or rule it out. The patient should just get the study, and we really shouldn't be talking about whether or not there should be delays or not. This is an issue of access, and this is something that we've got to work on with uh, our, our medical imaging colleagues.
1: And I would go further and say not just get the study done, but get timely expert interpretation of that study.
2: Yeah, people, people get sick 24 hours a day. Uh, lots of doctors work 24 hours a day. We certainly do in looking after patients and not being able to get the information that we need reliably interpreted just because it's nighttime doesn't really wash. And especially in the uh, in the setting where teleradiology is is possible, I think there's less and less excuse to not have an expert interpretation uh, when you need it.
1: Windy, ride,
0: we've talked about access to imaging. Let's get into the nitty-gritty details of the imaging itself. The pendulum has swung in the last few years from doing CTs for just about everyone with suspected appendicitis to considering ultrasound as the initial imaging modality of choice. What are some of the factors that should be taken into consideration when deciding whether to do a CT or an ultrasound? Well, there's really three things. First is the duration of pain. The sensitivity of CT does not change over time from the onset of pain, whereas the ultrasound becomes more and more sensitive over time as the disease progresses. Ultrasound sensitivity increases linearly with duration of pain between less than 12 hours and up to 72 hours. So if you get a patient that's had five hours of abdominal pain, ultrasound is likely to be very insensitive where a CT will be quite sensitive, as opposed to the patient who presents after three days, where ultrasound sensitivity will approach that of CTs. The next factor to consider is who's reading the ultrasound. As all of us who do point-of-care ultrasound know, the more experience you have doing it, the better you get at it. And does your center do a lot of ultrasounds for Appy? One study showed that the centers who do more ultrasounds for appendicitis have better overall sensitivity for appendicitis, which makes sense. The last factor to consider in deciding whether to do an ultrasound or a CT is the patient's body habitus. CT's accuracy is increased in obese patients, while ultrasound accuracy is increased in slim patients. So again, the three factors to consider when you're deciding whether to do an ultrasound or a CT to rule out appendicitis is first the duration of symptoms from the onset of pain, who's reading the ultrasound, in other words, does your center do a lot of ultrasounds for appendicitis, and thirdly, the patient's body habitus. Next, we're going to get into some numbers about the accuracy of ultrasound for ruling out appendicitis. So if the accuracy of clinical gestalt is somewhere between 75 and 90% for appendicitis, how does that compare to the accuracy of ultrasound and CT for appendicitis?
2: Looking at uh, ultrasound for appendicitis is, uh, is a little bit challenging when you look at the literature. Uh, there's a, a lot of heterogeneity in the studies, and it's something that I, I think is really in evolution right now, in terms of the assessment of appendicitis in particular. If you look at uh, meta-analyses and reviews of the literature trying to establish what the sensitivity of ultrasound is, the estimates are really widely ranging from as low as uh, 44% to as high as uh, uh, the high 90s or 100%, with a a specificity that actually has a a similarly wide range, sometimes as low as in the 40s and sometimes as high as in the high 90s. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, that reflects some of the differences between ultrasound and CT scan you know for CT scan you get the patient on the gantry and you've got contrast or not and you set up the study in a way it goes and there aren't a lot of variables that affect the quality of the study that you get and then it's just the interpretation component whereas for ultrasound there's a big element of image acquisition that's important for it. It's very dependent on operator skill. Uh, It's also very dependent uh, or much more dependent than CT scan is on the patient characteristics and the, and the body habitus and so forth and uh, where their bowel gas happens to be at the time in terms of how good that ultrasound is going to be looking for the thing that you're trying to find. So, the, the true estimates of sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound, I think, are really difficult to to ascertain. CT, I think, is a little bit clearer from the literature, and I think it's fairly clear that it outperforms ultrasound in general for detection of appendicitis. And the sensitivities are usually in the, the low 90s with specificities in the mid to high 90s when you're looking at CT, depending on the, the different protocoling. The other thing that is probably important to point out when you're talking about the accuracy of CT versus ultrasound and appendicitis is that, of course, we're not always finding just appendicitis. There's often other diagnoses that are accounting for the symptoms that made us order the test in the first place. And in those circumstances, uh, CT makes the alternate diagnosis probably about twice as often as the ultrasound does uh, when you're you're looking at those patients. So that's something that's important to keep in mind for this as well.
0: So let's go a little bit further into talking about ultrasound for appendicitis. As you mentioned, it's not black and white, and the sensitivities and specificities range hugely. There are several diagnostic criteria for ultrasound that I just want to review, because I think it's important for us to be able to interpret the ultrasound report so that when we get back an equivocal one, we can interpret it in a way that might help us decide what to do next. The ultrasound diagnostic criteria for acute appendicitis are three things. One, a non-compressible appendix. Two, no peristalsis. And three, a diameter of more than six millimeters. It should be noted, however, that the diameter of the normal non-diseased appendix varies from five to 11 millimeters. So the other signs of appendicitis that I mentioned must be factored in when making the diagnosis of appendicitis on ultrasound. There's other suggestive secondary findings of of appendicitis on ultrasound which are appendicolith, hyperechoic fat, and free fluid in males. So we often get back these reports that are equivocal and it's important to understand that there's not just one absolute finding on ultrasound that says whether a patient has appendicitis or not, But it's a combination of all these findings. So Dr. Deschensky, now that we know what the findings of appendicitis are on ultrasound, what's the rate of appendicitis if the report comes back appendix not seen on ultrasound? And what's the negative predictive value of appendix not seen?
2: So, again, that's something that's a little bit difficult to interpret given the uh, heterogeneity in the literature and the, the rates of appy not seen, depending on the study that you're looking at, may be as uh, low as 14% and as high as 65%. There was uh, one study done in 2012 that uh, looked specifically at what happened to patients when the appendix was not seen. They had 400 consecutive uh, adult and pediatric patients uh, at Stanford that they were assessing for possible appendicitis. And they had one of the high rates of appendicitis, or appendix rather, not seen at about two thirds of them. Of those patients where it wasn't seen, uh, only about 5% ultimately ended up having appendicitis compared with 18% in the overall cohort. And so their suggestion uh, from this paper was that not seeing the appendix is actually an indication for observation rather than going on to more advanced imaging. And the negative predictive value in that particular study at least was in the neighborhood of sort of 85 to 95 percent so it may be fairly high but it's a little bit difficult to know how to interpret it and as you mentioned before the secondary signs of appendicitis would really inform your decision-making in the circumstances where you don't see the appendix. So if you see free fluid, if you see perisecal fat changes, you are going to have a much higher index of suspicion that there's still something going on there, even if you haven't seen the appendix. And the more findings you have or a combination of findings, the greater the likelihood that, uh, that this was actually a false negative.
0: I see all too often that a doc gets an ultrasound report back that says, can't see appendix, and the reflexes automatically to get a CT. But based on what we're seeing here, the negative predictive value of, of an ultrasound where they can't see the appendix of 85 to 95%, that really decreases the likelihood of appendicitis significantly. I mean, what do you think about not reflexively going to a CT and sitting on the patient for maybe 8 hours or 12 hours? re-examining them. If their pain goes away, then they can go home. If they're still tender and you still suspect appendicitis, they can get a repeat ultrasound. Because just like with the white blood cell count, as the duration of the illness progresses, the likelihood of the ultrasound being positive is higher. In other words, the, the sensitivity gets even better as the illness progresses. What's your take on that?
2: So I I think that there's different strategies that you can use in that circumstance and of course it is going to depend on what your pretest probability was when you sent that patient for ultrasound. So if it was somebody where I was really very suspicious and it wasn't a good quality scan and they couldn't see the appendix, I I'm probably more likely to go ahead and do the CT earlier. Having said that, I think that there's absolutely value in observation and reassessment of the patient and sometimes uh, repeating the ultrasound as well, especially if the quality initially wasn't good, there was a lot of bowel gas in the way and they didn't get good visualization. Sometimes bringing the patient back and repeating the ultrasound can actually give you better images than what you had uh, on the first case. And then that's avoided some radiation for you as well. It's given you some time to evaluate and reassess the patient and see what's been going on on with them too. Probably the risk of having a bad complication while you're waiting for that is likely fairly low. The the study I mentioned before had a very low incidence of perforation in the patients where they didn't see the appendix. So the likelihood that all of a sudden the patient's going to perforate while you're waiting and reassessing them or waiting to image them again is probably fairly low, So that's likely a a safe and, and fairly reasonable strategy, I think, to use.
0: So while we were discussing before, it's unclear whether perforation rates actually go up with a delay in diagnosis, specifically in the patient that has an ultrasound where they can't see the appendix. Those patients have a very low rate of perforation, and so observing those patients is generally a safe thing to do.
1: I would agree that the challenge is where do you park this patient for six eight hours while you're waiting and those those in the audience who have the advantage of observation unit we in Canada rarely have that structure in order to take advantage of but but certainly that would be a, a plus for these patients.
2: Yeah, I I, I think that you know, there is some evidence in the literature that there's value in repeat observation, repeat physical exams, sometimes repeating lab work on these patients as well, where the diagnosis isn't uh, immediately clear. And I agree with Brian, this is an area where Sometimes what we know from the literature kind of butts up against the realities of of clinical practice. And certainly for those of us around this table, we don't work in places where we sit around with our feet up on the desk drinking coffee, looking at a bunch of empty stretchers in our department very often. I think there's a lot of fairly significant disincentives, unfortunately, in our system where we're working to holding on to patients and observing them, at least under the, the supervision of the emergency physician. We have all kinds of pressures on us in terms of uh, bed flow, patient flow, wait times, targets that we're trying to meet. Not to mention the idea that often you'll have to hand these patients over to one of our colleagues and there's reluctance to hand patients over and to take patients over and hand off as well. And that's not necessarily the best thing for the patient, but I I think it's a reality of the way that we're practicing.
0: Mm -hmm. So it it really depends on where you work. Where where I work, in the middle of the night, you'll get a CT only for something that you believe is immediately life-threatening or soon to be life-threatening. And for patients with suspected appendicitis who had an ultrasound early in the evening, that's equivocal. Uh, That's the kind of patient who, as we mentioned, is low risk for anything bad happening in the next 12 hours. And those patients can wait until the next morning for repeat imaging and repeat examination. And those are the patients that we sometimes consider keeping in the department uh, or even sending home to come back for a repeat ultrasound in the morning. So we'd love to hear your experience and what you do at your shop when it comes to imaging for appendicitis. You can email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com or you can tweet us or leave a comment on the episode page on the website. We'd love to hear your feedback on this one as it is quite controversial. let's move on to talking about ct in particular if you do end up ordering a ct for suspected appendicitis what kind of ct do you order there's the plain ct of the abdomen there's ct abdomen with iv contrast there's ct abdomen with oral contrast there's ct abdomen with iv and oral there's ct with iv and rectal contrast or there's the limited plain ct just of the right lower quadrant Which of these CTs should we be ordering in what situations?
1: So there's a bit of controversy here in the ER literature and the radiology literature as to what is enough to rule in or out appendicitis. In the ER literature, we feel non-contrast CT should be enough. And the radiologists, on the other hand, like to get a contrast CT. Uh, The problem, of course, is This then for oral contrast is waiting for transit time of at least one hour to get this oral contrast down to the area of the appendix. They want to know whether dye rolls into the appendageal lumen or not. And so we got to hold on to the patient. And then for intravenous contrast, they like to see the vasculature and the inflammatory changes that are potentiated by intravenous contrast. And of course, then we have to wait for a creatinine. And is the creatinine too high? And calculate creatinine clearance, whether that's right or not. That's the practice, I think, still. And so these are delays in obtaining the final result. The fact of the matter is the governing bodies in emergency medicine and radiology both support The use of contrast and feel that that does help in ruling in or out appendicitis with ct
0: so here i just want to make clear what the relationship between body habitus and the likelihood that you'll get a good image with ultrasound plain ct and contrast ct when it comes to ultrasound versus plain ct Ultrasound is not very good when it comes to obese patients, and CT is not very good when it comes to very slim patients. Now when you throw CT contrast into the mix, it makes it a little bit more complicated. Contrast is preferred by radiologists in the extremes of body habitus. So in a very, very skinny patient where plain CT isn't that great, they might want to throw in contrast, and in a patient who's extremely obese, they also might want to throw in contrast. So all this talk about CT, does CT decrease the negative appendectomy rate, and does CT decrease the perforation rate? I mean, by doing all these CTs, is it actually changing our outcomes?
2: So you certainly hope that lots of CTs would decrease the negative appendectomy rate. Uh, Surprisingly, the literature around this is uh, somewhat varied and uh, occasionally actually conflicting. Uh, There are Uh, a number of uh, published papers out there that show that the rate of negative appendectomy does drop. A lot of these are single institution studies, although some of them have been statewide. Interestingly, a lot of the difference in negative appendectomy rate is attributable to cases where it's females, and it hasn't really affected the negative appy rate in men all that much. So it's really determining alternate diagnoses and whether or not that's more significant in women. In terms of uh, decreasing the perforation rate, that's actually not really all that clear from the literature. Of course, doing CTs increases the time to treatment. So in theory, that may increase the the perforation rate, but there really isn't anything definitive uh, that I could find from the literature that answered that question.
0: So while there's no great evidence that CTs actually decrease the negative appendectomy rate or decrease the perforation rate, the literature does note that in males, the negative appendectomy rate is probably not decreased by doing more CTs, whereas in women, the negative appendectomy rate probably is decreased by doing more CTs. So next time you're in the situation where you're thinking about appendicitis and you're wondering whether to do a CT or not, you might want to take this into consideration. Moving on to treatment of appendicitis in the emergency department, should we be starting all patients diagnosed with appendicitis in the ED on antibiotics? Is there any support for this in the literature?
2: So there really isn't good evidence to support routinely starting antibiotics on patients in the emergency department with appendicitis. Now, of course, there's caveats to that. If you've got a sick patient who's got a perforated appendicitis or diffuse frank peritonitis, or you're concerned that they're septic with happy as the source, of course, you're going to start those patients on antibiotics but uncomplicated appendicitis does not routinely need antibiotics at the time of diagnosis. What they need is antibiotics at the time of surgery in order to decrease the perioperative complication rate. So they should get a dose of antibiotics within uh, an hour of knife-hitting scan, basically.
0: Okay. So what about the patient who's waiting overnight, for example, for an ultrasound or a CT in the morning? Do those patients need IV antibiotics while they're waiting?
2: I'm not aware that there's any literature to support or refute that one way or the other. It probably makes some sense to to do that. To, um, whether or not it actually decreases the rate of complication or not is unclear. But as I think we'll talk about when we talk about medical treatment of appendicitis, there's at least some support for doing this.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that leads us to the next question is... There's been some literature in the last few years about non-surgical treatment for appendicitis, i.e. medical management. What does the literature say comparing non-surgical versus surgical management of appendicitis, and how should we translate that into our clinical practice?
2: I think this is actually an, an interesting area in the literature. Uh, one of one of the first things that I'll say is when we talk about medical treatment of appendicitis, we're not talking about the patient who has a large abscess or phlegmon who the surgeons have decided is too high risk to go to the operating room. We know that those types of patients actually have an increased risk of perioperative complication if you do take them to the OR early. So those ones are often treated with percutaneous drainage and IV antibiotics and then oral antibiotics and and have uh, elective appendectomies in the future. What we're really talking about here is the patient who has uh, appendicitis diagnosed and then is treated just with oral antibiotics rather than being taken to the operating room. And there have been a a number of studies now uh, looking at this, comparing the treatment with oral antibiotics with uh, immediate appendectomy. Probably the study that people are most familiar with is the one by Vons published in uh, 2011 in The Lancet that was a a non-inferiority trial comparing uh, Amox-CLAV to appendectomy for acute uncomplicated uh, appendicitis and they managed to randomize uh, 243 patients uh, into the two groups. And their conclusion was that uh, clav was non-inferior to emergency appendectomy for treatment of acute appendicitis. Now, Not surprisingly, medical treatment is associated with an increased risk for recurrent disease in the future, and in this trial, 12% of the patients who were managed with antibiotics ended up undergoing an appendectomy within the next 30 days, and an additional 26% had an appendectomy between 30 days and a year following the antibiotic therapy. There has been a meta-analysis published by Mason as well in uh, Surgical Infection in 2012 looking at the five randomized trials that have compared antibiotic therapy with appendectomy. And their conclusion was that the benefit of conservative treatment is really around the fact that it decreases the perioperative morbidity associated with appendectomy. So they found that there was a 46% reduction in complications in terms of less pain, less disability, and so forth compared with routine appendectomy. But for overall treatment failure, the summary point estimates really favored appendectomy with about a 40% failure rate for antibiotics versus appendectomy. I think there's been debate around whether these studies have had any ability to distinguish which patients would benefit most from conservative therapy and which of those patients are likely to benefit more from surgical intervention. And I think identifying what patient characteristics are more likely to benefit from one treatment or the other will be an area of future research uh, around this. With respect to pediatrics in this, there really isn't very much uh, good data out there to help guide us as to whether or not this is an appropriate treatment for kids, but I'm sure that that will be coming. And there are some controversies around this where there are questions that uh, really haven't been answered. If you look at the rate of recurrence, uh, you have to look at what, what are the overall costs to the individual and to society in terms of uh, the fairly high rate of subsequent appendectomy and whether or not there might be an advantage even to waiting to do an appendectomy on an elective basis. There's things that we don't really know about what happens to patients who are treated medically. Do they develop adhesions that uh, might be more of a problem in the future? For female patients, of course, if they've got an inflammatory problem in the pelvis that uh, maybe is undertreated or has a longer course of treatment, does that represent something like a fertility risk? And we don't really understand these things yet. Probably the best candidates for medical therapy of appendicitis are the ones who are early in their course. They're non-perforated. They're less than 24 hours from the onset of the symptoms. And it would seem to make physiologic sense that uh, the ones who don't have appendicillis or a mass or a foreign body or anything that's causing an obstruction of the appendix that's likely to be persistent but there really isn't enough evidence for now to be definitive around that so the bottom line is the the choice of conservative versus operative treatment i think at this point is one that the emergency physician is not going to be making this should be something that should be done in consultation with a surgeon
1: i think for the most part uh, the surgeons are worried of uh, the evidence of a lith in this and particularly an appendicolith obstructing the lumen of the appendix that this Traditionally, is thought to be a much greater incidence of going on to complicated appendicitis and not resolving with antibiotic therapy. There is newer evidence that challenges that dogma, but I think still, by and large, if we see an appendicolith on imaging that the surgeons will, will vote for early appendectomy.
0: So while this is a decision that ultimately the surgeon is going to make, it's good for us to be up on the kind of decision making that they need to do for our patients. The bottom line is that probably the best candidates for medical therapy are adults with an appendicitis that's early in the course, non-perforated, less than 24 hours, and don't have an appendicolith, a foreign body, or mass causing persistent obstruction of the appendix. We'll need some further studies on this to clarify the exact role of medical therapy in appendicitis. So let's review the take-home points for appendicitis. First, the Alvarado score has limitations in that it performs poorly in the elderly, in pediatrics, and in women, which are precisely the patients that we might need help making clinical decisions on. And the appendicitis inflammatory response score isn't much better than the Alvarado score. Clinical assessment may actually outperform these scores. What about the white blood cell count when it comes to appendicitis? Is it helpful? Well, while the EM community in general doesn't put much weight on the white blood cell count in acute appendicitis, a white blood cell count of more than 10 does have a positive likelihood ratio of 2.42 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.25, which isn't great, but compared to clinical variables, it's not bad. And patients with a very high white blood cell count, like 22,000 for example, especially if they have a left shift, should increase your suspicion for appendicitis in the right clinical setting. And what about CRP? Not too many docs order CRPs for patients with query appendicitis, but the literature does show that a markedly elevated CRP and white blood cell combination has a very high Positive likelihood ratio and a normal white blood cell count and normal CRP have a very low negative likelihood ratio. Again, the clinical setting needs to be taken into account, and remember that these studies suffer from spectrum bias. One of the key themes from this episode was that the duration of illness is an important factor to take into consideration when assessing patients with appendicitis. As time goes on, the clinical findings will become more sensitive as well as the white blood cell count and the ultrasound. Well, what about imaging for appendicitis? Even though the sensitivities and specificities are all over the map, ultrasound should be considered to be the first-line imaging modality in young, non-obese patients whose duration of illness has been more than 12 hours. One option if you get back an equivocal ultrasound report is to observe the patient for 8 to 12 hours or send them home to return for a reassessment in 8 to 12 hours and at that time re-examine them and repeat the ultrasound if you still have a suspicion for appendicitis. Remember that CT will make an alternate diagnosis at twice the rate of an ultrasound so if you suspect that there might be an alternate diagnosis you might want to consider CT over ultrasound. Does the increasing use of CT for diagnosing appendicitis decrease the negative appendectomy rate? Well, in women it does, but not for men. And what about the use of antibiotics for appendicitis? There's no good evidence to routinely start patients on antibiotics with uncomplicated appendicitis in the emergency department. They do need antibiotics just before they go to the OR. If you're keeping a patient overnight to wait for imaging it makes sense to start them on antibiotics in the interim. And what about conservative management with antibiotics versus surgery for appendicitis in general? Well, the big study in 2011 in the Lancet comparing a mox clav to appendectomy showed that antibiotics were non-inferior to surgery for acute appendicitis. Now medical treatment does increase the chances of recurrent appendicitis, and there is a higher failure rate compared to surgery. On the other hand, patients who are treated medically don't have the proper of complications unless they eventually do go on to have an appendectomy. More studies are needed on this subject. For now, appendectomy seems to be favored in most cases of uncomplicated appendicitis. And this month's quote of the month is from Tess Gerritsen, who's a physician in California as well as an author. Where we go depends on what we know, and what we know depends on where we go. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's episode. We're only a couple of weeks away from our brand new Emergency Medicine Cases website that's going to give you all kinds of amazing functionality, including downloading to your iPads and your iPhones automatically, getting automatic downloads to your Evernote or Dropbox of the written summaries. We're going to have a free app by AgileMD that'll have all the written summaries on them. These written summaries will be organized into subheadings, we'll have images, we'll have links to original articles, and all kinds of amazing functionality. The other thing we're going to have on the new website is something new called Next Month on EM Cases, where you can post your questions to our experts before the episode is posted. And if they're good questions, we'll ask the experts on the podcast And then you'll be able to hear the answer when you listen to the podcast. So the way to get the most out of EM cases is first review the next month on EM cases, which will have all the questions that we're going to be asking the experts on the podcast. You can add your own questions, then listen to the podcast, read the written summary. And what we'll also have that's brand new is a new Q&A where you can read the questions and then click on the answers, which are based on what our experts said on the podcast. Finally, I'd really like to encourage you to fill out a 30-second feedback questionnaire at the end of the episode page that'll help us gauge your learning. Finally, we'd love to hear your cases related to any of the episodes. You can send in your cases by emailing me at Anton at emergencymedicinecases.com, or you can post them on the related episode page. Well, that about wraps it up, so until next time... Take it easy.